Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. And as Olivia just said, thank you, Olivia, as she finished up her fantastic program, Radio Ravioli, we have something very special happening this evening on Tectonic with someone special tonight December 5 2022 is the return to live in studio guests at Tectonic at least for this evening one guest I'm very happy to have an old friend back on the show Eric Zimmerman, who is an accomplished game designer and author and designer and educator and on and on. We're going to be speaking with Eric Zimmerman for the hour here starting in a few moments. And I want to tell you uh, why Eric is here and what your role is going to be during this show, listeners. Eric was first on the show in October of 2017. And uh, as a matter of fact, Eric Zimmerman was guest number five uh, of Tectonic. And this is now episode that I've hosted, episode 252. <laughs> so Eric Zimmerman has, uh, has some has some history with Tectonic being in the uh, in the first five episodes. And uh, back in October 2017, he was talking about a game that he had just come out with called the Metagame that was played with cards, physical uh, cards, not an online game. And this time he's going to be talking with us about his new book called The Rules We Break, Lessons in Play, Thinking, and Design. And uh, your role, as promised, listeners is if you are listening live to this, you are going to have an opportunity to weigh in and contribute and participate in at least one, maybe two of the exercises and or games that we're going to be playing this evening with Eric Zimmerman. And we're going to, as we talk about this book, The Rules We Break. If you'd like to participate, I think what we did five years ago is we had people call in, but we're not going to do call-ins this evening. What I want you to do is fire up Ye old Web Browser and go to WFMU.org and click the link Playlist and Comments. The live listener chat board is where we're going to be taking input uh, and participation from the listeners during this evening's live in-studio interview with Eric Zimmerman. And with that, <coughs> excuse me, let me, let me cross fingers and see if this works. Eric, are you with us? I am here. Oh, you sound great. Welcome back to Tectonic, Eric Zimmerman. I'm so happy to be here. I had no idea I was bringing flesh, the the, the body back to um, <laughs> WFMU. I'm very, very honored to uh, to be an in-person guest. Well, it's an honor to have you back. As I as I just said, you were you were guest number five, and so it's a pleasure to see you back in Studio A in Jersey City. It's been a it's been it's been quite a road. I know. Uh, you teach at NYU, and you and at NYU, there's been quite a road of returning to some semblance of normality, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like these two interviews are sort of bookending the the pandemic. Uh, you know, it was I, I when we when we met in 2017. I guess it was still a couple years away. Now I'm not going to say it, we're it's a couple years behind us, but hopefully this is uh, yeah a return to the the pre pre COVID times. Yeah, I hope this is. I, I, I'm not, of course, I'm not going to say the pandemic is over, but it, I, it does feel like it's on the tail end of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so here you are. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's great to see anyone in Studio A with me uh, as a live guest, and especially you. For the last several years, it's been all recorded interviews, which I also enjoy. But there's something unique about having someone uh, in live for the broadcast, especially for your book, uh, Eric, The Rules We Break, because a lot of this book is about 
improvisation and working within the constraints you have and showing creativity and drawing on powers of design. Like you say uh, in the subtitle, this book is, uh, has lessons in play, thinking, and design. And I really enjoyed uh, reading the exercises and games in this book. There are, I don't know how many dozens of... 24. <laughs> okay, two dozen. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> two dozen exercises and games that people can play with as little as two people up to, what, 100, I guess? Hundreds, yeah. Hundreds. And on time scales starting uh, with just a couple of minutes, a very quick game with a few people, all the way up to these design challenges and experiences that can stretch across many different sessions that can go on for months, right? Right, right. What is the, that's a huge s scope that you're trying to deliver in this one book. Um, how do you present this in a, in a sentence to people to, to wrap your arms around that scope from small, quick games with a few people to months-long design challenges with hundreds of people? Well, Mark, I'm a game designer, and you know most of what I've done in my career is making games, and that's ranged from tabletop games, a lot of video games. I ran a game studio in New York City that I co-founded with Peter Lee called Game Lab for, for many years. I've worked on commercial stuff. I've worked on more educational nonprofit stuff. Game Lab spun off a nonprofit called... Um, the Institute of Play that that looked at the intersection of games and learning. I've also made games that are large-scale museum installations. Architect Natalie Pozzi and I have worked together uh, creating sort of more kind of experimental uh, experiences on a, on a big scale that cross over between architecture and game design. So I really, I've made a lot of games. Now, during this time, I've also been an educator. So I was an adjunct professor. Um, for many years, by the way, shout out to the adjuncts at uh, the New School and also in, in the California system. Uh, big, you know, sh solidarity and, and power to them. Hope things go well uh, with their negotiations and strike. Um, I, uh, uh, I also am now a full-time professor at NYU at the Game Center at Tisch School of the Arts. And I've realized that teaching game design, and that's ranged from working with kids in after-school programs, uh, working with college students, high school students, um, working with uh, industry professionals at, and in workshops and seminars. Um, teaching has been a huge part of how I understand what design is, what it means to create experiences for people, whether we're talking about technology or in-person experiences, uh, how designers create meaning through play and, and design and games. And Part of what this book came out of is I've realized I have this whole bag of tricks, um, exercises, <laughs> games, ideas, concepts, that when I stray outside of people who are strictly in games, I find that they actually find a lot of these techniques and exercises, lessons, and games incredibly useful. So this book is me just wanting to share what I find so special and interesting about games, not just with people who themselves may be game designers or students of game design, but with anyone who is a designer. And by that I mean you might be a graphic designer, urban planner, experienced designer, but you also might be someone who's designing an organization or designing a party. Um, anyone who is creating an experience for anybody else. You might be, you might be in business, you might be in the arts. Um, so this book, is for me, it's not like a book of ideas. It's less about facts. It's more like a recipe book. And there are little micro essays scattered throughout, but the main bulk of what's in there are step-by-step -step exercises for games and, and playful activities and lessons and, and things that hopefully people can integrate into a process, a brainstorming process, uh, a, social, a, a social experience, a warm-up activity, um, maybe, as you mentioned, like a, a long-term creative project, and this can help you structure that as well. Yeah, so when you say it could be for designers or people who are involved in designing an experience or a party or anything, I was thinking it's, it's anyone who's involved in play and thinking or design. If you're involved in thinking, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with a team. Let's cast it, the net wide. Yeah, and I think, that, I think it's true because there are exercises here that are inviting you to 
interact with a team, again, the team could be a handful of people or dozens or even hundreds of people, and learn from those interactions. I think there, a, a, lot, of the, uh, a lot of the instructions might read as though you're teaching game designers how to hone the craft of mm. game design, but I think people can take away from these exercises much more broad right. learnings about um, community building, communication, uh, and I, and the creative process. Yes, I, I think that I think that when some people hear games, they think, okay, it's maybe he's talking about you know violent, addictive kid stuff on screens, or maybe he's talking about goofing around and you know being playful in a kind of a, a silly, whimsical way. And okay, in part, maybe there's a little bit of that, but but. To try and frame it a little bit, it's sort of why why I think play is an interesting way of thinking about contemporary culture and society, and why I think that game design is relevant to a whole bunch of fields that aren't just the craft of games. I mean, maybe it's good for us to get into that a little bit. Yeah. Well, let's talk about games. One of the one of the concepts that you write about very early in the book that I appreciated was this idea that the 21st century could turn out to be the ludic, L-U-D-I-C, some people may not know that word, the ludic century. What did you mean by that? Well, ludic just comes from, I think, ludus, the Latin word for play. But here's what I mean by that. Um, there's a way in which media, art, entertainment, culture has shifted, I think, from the 20th to the 21st century. Um, and... A lot of stuff happened in the 20th century, um, you know, digital, the rise of digital information, the kind of abstraction of information to ones and zeros, the rise of vast bureaucracies, first paper bureaucracies and digital, digital bureaucracies. The moving image was sort of invented as a cultural medium, and that gave rise to, you know, propaganda, storytelling, advertising, personal narratives. But there's something that's happening to cultural media in the 21st century. Now, I know I'm making huge generalizations, and also it's not that insightful to say, but what am I talking about? There's a sense in which media, art, entertainment ha is becoming more modular, more systemic, more interactive, both me with the system, but also me with other people, more, more participatory. Um, and the reason why games are one potentially important way of looking at this shift is because games are the cultural medium that's an ancient form of human expression that are themselves modular, participatory, um, um, social, uh, and systemic. That in other words, to play a game is to kind of push and pull at the inputs and outputs of a system. So many aspects of our lives today as I don't need to tell you, Mark, because your whole show is about this, are, are deeply enmeshed in networks of complex information. So the ways that we live and work and learn and socialize and romance, the way our finances happen, the way we connect with our governments, um, all of these sort of crucial aspects of our lives are part of vast networks of information, some of which we have some control over and much of which we don't have control over, that sort of control us. So there's a kind of literacy, I think, that's necessary for people to have. And again, your your show is like a fountain of this sort of literacy, but it's about understanding how systems work, how we relate to them, how we interact with them. And games are not the only way of understanding all of this, and game games are not the only way of kind of working with these ideas, but it just so happens that games are an ancient human form that is particularly relevant to this idea of how do systems work and how do we create meaningful experiences for people? How do we design, for example, meaningful participation in a democracy, for example, right? Now, I'm not saying that democracy is a game, but it's it's a sort of participatory system with inputs and outputs and, and balancing that needs to happen and, and, and cheats and loopholes and exploits, right? That we can, there's something interesting and relevant there when we use games as a way of thinking about other systems. Yeah, it's a, it's a helpful lens through which to 
engage and understand uh, what's happening in the world right now. It, and not just because games are ascendant. I mean, you hear a lot that the games industry is so many billions of dollars, bigger than movies and TV, but it's, it's much bigger than a market size. I think it's, as you're saying, the, the idea of play and quote-unquote playing within constraints and maybe changing the rules, that sort of thinking applies to all sorts of aspects of our life and work and the the use of technology now and this is why as soon as i heard about this book immediately i wanted you to be on the show because this book ties directly into uh themes of tectonic of of understanding how technology which is gamified we'll get into that in a bit uh, affects us in so many different ways i mean even if you look at cult the cultural forms we're talking mm -hmm. about like we talked about the moving image but in this century, the moving image is not about sitting in a darkened theater where you're enmeshed, right? It's about streaming it online, stopping it, starting it, downloading it legally or illegally, cutting it up into fan culture, putting it on TikTok, remixing it. Um, well, we don't use TikTok on this show, but keep fair going. Fair enough. Um, the the um, the or whatever social yeah, media yes, one yes. may be using. Some some decentralized nonprofit co-op oriented Absolutely. video sharing uh, network. Yes, yes. But or 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 even the way that that work is changing and the idea of a kind of a gig economy and the way that right. you know one has to rethink one's relationship to larger organizations. There's there's a sense in which all of these structures have been put <laughs> at play. And even again, even work, the the relationship between work and play itself has been sort of changing. Anyway, there's a lot of okay. Yeah, I just want to read. Uh, I want to read a comment. Oh, where is it? A comment from the comment board. <clears throat> Excuse me. Listener Shumyum writes: I named my son Ludo because I love games. Now he does too. Mm, love it. <laughs> love it. Uh, and where that's someone, beautiful. Yes. Um, and we also had uh, listener Sam who writes: I'm a ludic luddite. Oh. How about that for alliteration? Well, I, you know, I, I, I wonder if Sam plays crossword puzzles or sports. Yes, or, it could you be. Know. Luddite is not a bad word at Tectonic. Ah, okay. The, the, the Luddites had the right idea. <laughs> they, they weren't protesting the technology. They were protesting the exploitative system uh, under which they were, they were, being, they were being crushed. Um, it wasn't the looms they hated. It was, it was the cut that management was taking. Anyway, that's a whole other show. But let's, let's move to, now that we have set the context for this game, and again, I'm, I'm speaking with Eric Zimmerman, game designer, educator, author, who has a new book out called The Rules We Break, Lessons in Play, Thinking, and Design. And we are having a conversation at the same time on the live listener chat at wfmu.org. Click playlist and comments. And sometime during the show soon, we're going to involve the listeners. But first, I wanted to involve you, Eric. Okay. In one of your own games from this book. Uh-oh. It's called The Language Game. And according to the language, and as, as we talked about earlier, this book ranges from exercises <coughs> for two people up to hundreds of people. This is one of the ones on the smaller side, since there's only two of us in this room right now. It says, what you need, two players and 15 minutes. And we don't have to spend 15 minutes on this. Mm -mm. We can do a, 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 uh, an abbreviated version. But here's how you describe the language game. Two volunteers, that would be us, alternate saying random words. By gradually adding constraints, the activity evolves into a real game. This is a lesson in play and meaning. So here again is an example of what you were saying, Eric, this book does. It both invites people to play and, and, and participate in the exercise, but also to see how we can make meaning mm. out of changing the experience in some way, in, in this case, changing the rules of the game. So let's start, shall we? Let's. Let's. Okay, we got our two volunteers. <laughs> Tell them how to play. We're going to play a game. I'm just reading from the book. I'm going to explain how it works. Here's how, here's how it works. Each of us is going to alternate saying a single word. The only rule is that you can't repeat a word that has been said before by either player. Are you ready? I'm ready. I bet you are. You designed the game. Okay. Okay, let's try. You go. Um, coffee. Poster. Microphone. Lamp. T 
table. Okay, this is boring. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> no offense, but this first version of the game is rather boring. All you have to do is say a noun that doesn't repeat what you've already said. That's not much of a game. So what we're going to do is, uh, you mentioned coffee. So we're going to change it, and this is straight from the book. We're going to limit the domain. We're going to restrict the content of the words you can select. Okay, so here's the new rule. We're adding a rule to the game. Uh, let's make food and beverages the new rule. Fair you, enough. You can only say words that are things you can eat or drink, like uh, drinks or fruits, vegetables, particular dishes. Okay, ready? Uh, spaghetti. Gazpacho. Uh, cannellini. Sesame seeds. Oh, you! I thought you were going to stay Italian. <laughs> Beer, <laughs> whiskey. Okay, so we're we're getting somewhere, but it's still not quite as no. interesting as maybe a real game. So now we're going to go to the third uh, and final Pokemon form of this language game. It has evolved into the following, and I'm re again reading from the book. Um, it's my responsibility as the designer to make this game better. So let's, let's add one more rule and see what happens. We're going to keep all the rules we had so far. You can't repeat a word. It has to be food and beverage related. But here's a new rule. After the first word is spoken, the last letter of that word needs to be the first letter of the next word. And then the last letter of that word becomes the first letter of the next word. Do you understand these rules, Eric? Indeed, I do. They're, they're nicely written, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Since you wrote them. Okay. So, uh, coffee. Eggplant. Tilapia. Apple. Oh, uh, oh, you already said eggplant. Um, eh, eh, well, eh, uh, egg. Garbanzo. Orange. Be Oh, you said bean, but I just went with garbanzo. Um, we, we're at we're at we're at uh, E again. Uh, I'm gonna say elephant milk. Knish, love knishes. Half-eaten piece of coffee. Cake. Oh, I thought you were gonna go ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So that was the language game, and then. For section four of the language game, you always have a debrief section after these exercises, and here section four is discuss what just happened. Can I? Can yeah, I? Please can do. I, can I make a comment, which is that this is not like a book of party games. You wouldn't like, <laughs> right? You know, you, I'm not suggesting that this is sort of like a way to have fun. This is something that you would do in a situation where you were wanting to learn about design, right? Right, and so that's why there's so so. This is a whole. This steps you through this kind of quick exercise, which is, hey, let's figure out how we can get this game to be fun and and what it means. And there's a lot to say about this particular exercise that I could I well, could talk about. No, but, but I think you're, you're bringing up the, uh, the salient point right here, which is that this book is filled with exercises that are uh, – they can be fun um, – and and some of them are meant to be fun, but the, but the overarching goal I think is to teach. Right. And what you're saying here is, look at how we played this game. First, we alternated any old word. It was not a it was not a game. And then we constrained it to a category. Still not a game. But then we added another constraint, and then it became a game. So do you see how? Adding enough constraint, not too many, but adding enough constraints make it a viable game. And and what's interesting about that is that in games and other kinds of media, people often think more is better. So that games are about having superpowers, going anywhere, doing anything, give me power, give me fun, give me the ability to sort of do whatever I want. But actually, games are, from a designer's point of view, are not about giving the player everything, they're actually about limiting what the player can do in very particular ways so that you end up with the right amount, the right kind of friction where there's an interesting amount of challenge um, and an interesting kind of meaning that you can make through choices. And I would guess that the first couple of rounds we were playing this, people are listening saying, okay, they're kind of saying some words. 
But on that third time, when I when you were trying to figure out another E word, or I was when 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 your H kind of stumped me for a moment, I um there's a were pauses. And in those pauses, I can only imagine people are kind of leaning forward, getting involved and thinking in their own heads. When you do this live, people start shouting out, helping people. We start breaking rules like I had to start using two and three two and three word uh uh, expressions to you know kind of make my way. You can start being clever within the constraints. So that is such an important lesson about what makes something feel playful, what makes something feel meaningful, and it's a, it, it's very paradoxical because when we when we think about play, we don't necessarily think about the rules that give rise to the play, and that's really one of the big lessons of this book is that people design systems. Now, why is that important? to try, sort of connect to a lot of the stuff that you talk about on Tectonic um, because it's one thing to think about the systems that are going to result in the, the sort of right amount of choice and challenge and friction that makes something fun, but that's actually really related to when, Mark, when you talk a lot about sort of dark design patterns, exploitative design, like the Adrian Hahn interview about gamification, it's kind of operating in the same ballpark. It's a, so I actually think when I talk about literacy as something that I think is important that can come out of these kind of lessons and ways of thinking, it's also about how if you can understand better how is this uh, system being structured in order to kind of entrap me or make me want more, get me addicted, um, it, it, it's also a critical lens in, look, right. in looking at how these systems are, are constructed. So it can do both things. Like it can help us make understand why something is fun and positive. Um, and it, it can also be a critical lens for us to sort of deconstruct those systems which can exploit us. When they're not, when they're not designed for our long-term benefit, you can more easily see what's happening. Right. You know, like, and, and you mentioned dark patterns. For any listeners who are unfamiliar with that concept, there's this whole list of, there's this guy, Harry uh, Brignall, I think, who has compiled this list of dozens or hundreds mm. of design patterns that websites and mobile apps use to trick people and deceive people and, and manipulate them into doing things that are not in their best interest, but are in the best interest of the company. And one of them, I'm sure a bunch of people uh, are familiar with, is if you're at a, a website and it says, do you want to sign up for this amazing, you know, it pops up like you can so many websites now, when you load up the, the web page, there's some pop-up right in your face with some offer. And the close button is often small or hard to find. That's a dark pattern. But then it says, we have this amazing new offer. Do you want to sign up for this right now? And there's a big button that says, yes, sign me up. And then the no button doesn't just say no. It says, um, I'm giving up on this incredible opportunity. <laughs> so you, you have to click this, this button with this humiliating text on it. And so I'm sure they use that because people tend to want to gravitate to the, yeah, it's awesome, even though the deal may not be in their best interest. And so, again, b back to this, this book, The Rules We Break, going through these exercises and learning how different interactions can be structured and with constraints and other aspects that you talk about you have a people can have a better literate way of understanding these designs when they encounter them in the wild because more often than not at least <laughs> according to um, what i've covered on the show in these last few years more often than not the patterns that come from these big tech companies and vc funded companies are not in people's best interest and they're using design perfectly tuned to manipulate, just to get the nth level of engagement or money out of, out of the users. And that's usually not in people's best interest. I wanted to pick up on this idea of gamification. You, you mentioned the Adrian Hahn interview. If anyone has not listened to that, you can go to the archives at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and you can find it. It's a few weeks ago with Adrian Hahn uh, with a book called You've Been Played, talking about these deceptive, uh, manipulative design patterns in games. And he's mostly talking about uh, video games and mobile games. Uh, but this, this idea of gamification, of using game design patterns for corporate purposes, for, for profiteering purposes, I was happy to see that you, Eric, also wrote about gamification in this book, The Rules We Break, and you drew a very similar conclusion to the one Adrian Hahn drew 
Um, what? But let me uh, let me let you state it. What do you think about gamification, Eric Zimmerman? Well, I guess I'll just say that that the little micro essay that's about gamification is called "Against Gamification." If I I don't want to uh, if I want to telegraph uh, where I'm going to be headed with this, but for me, gamification strip mines the surface of games. So they're taking things like points and rewards, badges, achievements, levels, leveling up, that feeling of getting powerful. But they're taking the surface of games and they're leaving the soul of play behind. And what I mean by that is um, all of the things that I feel are deeply powerful and important about play the idea of, for example, that play is a critical lens that we can put on a system because when you play, you always play with something, right? For example, uh, just to go into this for a second, you know, we say a, this, you see a kid walking playfully. You immediately can see, oh, they're, they're, they're playing around. They're what does that actually mean? There's a structure or system. In the case of walking, it's transportation. I'm getting from point A to point B. I'm, and the logical, rational way to do that is, is I'm moving efficiently with my body and through space, and I'm just sort of marching forward and, you know, getting there. But a kid who's walking playfully, maybe they're just burning off energy, a little bit bored, walking behind their parent. Maybe they're spinning around or walking backwards or avoiding cracks or just whistling while they walk or singing something in step as they're, as they're walking. All of these things are taking that structure, which is the logical structure of just getting from point A to point B, just efficient transportation, but they're playing with that structure. They're doing things which are not just there only to be the logical, rational, efficient human being that's trying to get from point A to point B. And that's play. Play always plays with a structure. You know, humor and jokes play with language. Role-playing plays with identity. Um, there, it, it, that there's a thing that we then put at play. Um, and so uh, just, just getting back to the point about gamification, um, th that's just one example of the way in which play can be a deeply sort of critical lens for, for these systems. But there's other things too, the sort of creative misbehavior um, that happens in games or the, the, the kind of um, uh, deep systems literacy or social interaction that we can have within a play space. All of these things are left behind when, um, when gamification, again, sort of strip mines the surface of games. And the last, the last point I'll put on this is that, um, or maybe not the last point, but the next point I'll put on this is that, for me, design always implies a model of what it means to be human. So for example, designing a chair, there's a certain model of a human body that's embedded in, in the design. And you know, for example, What's the the range of body types? Um, what's what's the the cost of this chair? How rich is this person going to be? But also, how disposable is the chair? How important is it for this person to not to to hold on to this chair for a long time? What about the aesthetic identity of the chair? How it reflects on my sense of taste and style? Um, wh where is this chair going to be used? Is it is it, you know, is this chair for a dining table that's going to make me feel like a king? Is it something much more modular and uh, and 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 multi-use? What's the context implied by the chair? So there's a there's a model of what it means to be human that's implied in any design. And for gamification, the model of what it means to be human. Now I'm talking about things like deceptive design patterns games that trick you into playing them, frequent flyer programs that are kind of trying to lure you in with, with point rewards and systems that you don't need and spending extra money. The model of what it means to be human is that sort of BF Skinner rat in a cage that's pushing a button in order to sort of like make the, make the next pellet come. It's this sort of, dis, for me, like very, very dehumanized, impoverished idea of what it means to be human. And that's maybe the biggest crime of gamification is that as a designer, you are like you're you're putting meaning out into the world. You're 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 creating an opportunity for for human beings by themselves with other people to, you know, to, to have a cultural experience. And it's 
uh, and if you're doing so at the expense of their humanity, it's really um, is like a crime against humanity. So that's so that's that's maybe the extreme version of this. Yeah. But that's for me, that's what's going on with gamification. I was trying to imagine what a gamified chair would look like. Oh, you sit down and it says. You want to buy ten more chairs, don't you? Yeah, I'll tell you what a gamified chair is. You know, like it, it places. The, I don't know if this is true, but I remember um, when we were in high school speculating about this that the like chairs in in McDonald's, we feel like they were designed to be comfortable for for ten minutes. <laughs> like you'll right. you'll sit in those sort of hard plastic chairs and they're comfortable, and then they they start getting extremely uncomfortable, and so they're yeah I, maybe that's like a I don't know if that's dehumanizing, but probably you know the the idea that like uh, 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 of sort of getting you in and out. Um, well, you, you know, I, I, I have a, I have a, a. Also, I remember the straws growing up. The straws at McDonald's were always like very large in size, right? Because so you would sort of consume the the, the drink more quickly, justifying your giant expense of having this extra right. large soda, and also again getting you getting you in and out more quickly. And we've heard about the uh, grocery stores, giant grocery stores, not so much in Manhattan, I don't think, but elsewhere in the country, they have these huge shopping carts, huge shopping carts. And I think part of the reason the shopping carts are so big is a gentle nudge that maybe you should fill this up. You don't want to just take this giant shopping cart and leave with three items, right. do you? Because right. that just looks silly. Right. Right. I'm going to fill it up. Um, I, w- I, would, I, would, I would bet also that there are plenty of chairs that are sort of designed for planned obsolescence as well. Chairs that are, you know, produced, but, but you know, small pieces and then break down and then you have to buy a whole new chair right. or that, you know, chairs that are that are manufactured, but without maybe a warranty or e- even a sense of replacement parts or, or, or upkeep. I've got one for you. Okay. This I had a, I have had a couple of guests on recently from Hellgate. You know, Hellgate, this independent journalistic outfit, it's based in uh, uh, either Brooklyn or I think they're in Brooklyn. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. they are they're doing great work and they just ran a piece on the absence of seating in Moynihan Train Hall, the new, the brand new oh. gleaming, which I love Moynihan Train Hall. It's beautifully designed with skylights and it looks a little bit like the old Penn Station. They did a great job. But in the center of Moynihan Train Hall, where you're, you're standing and looking at the big board waiting for your train, there's absolutely no seating. There's zero seating. Now, if you want to sit somewhere, you can, but it's over there in the food hall where you need to buy something first. Mm. And so the journalist who was digging into this was talking to people who were in charge of the design and maintenance of, of Moynihan. And I think they kind of sort of acknowledged that there's there's no seating for a reason. Right. And this is, I mean, that's tied to the 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 general decline of, of non-corporate public space. That's right. In urban <laughs> environments generally over the last several decades. That's right. Um, so which is to say that these these themes that were that you're bringing up in the rules we break. Right, right. <laughs> we're doing it, right? I mean, this is, conversation is kind this of This is it. This is what the book is meant to spark and to train. So I I again, I see these exercises in design as something which creatively and socially and intellectually um, sensitizes you to these things. And I you know, I just want to say that the book is Again, it's not about information. It's not about, oh, read this list of things. Right. or It's not even about best practices. Right. It is when I teach a class, again, I'm talking with kids or workshops with professionals or my university classes. I like putting people in situations which they then have to figure out. Of. Here's a broken game. Why don't you fix it? Right. Here's here's some weird constraints. What are you going to do with that? And then then we work together to figure out what is the process of moving forward. So there's a huge emphasis in this book on process. How do we work together? How do we structure our time? How do we interact with each other? And for game design, the secret to that process is prototyping and iteration. So that you don't make the perfect plan, you don't come up with a perfect idea. You say, what is the shortest distance between the thing I'm trying to do and I'm playing something? I've scribbled some stuff down on index cards. I'm dealing them out. We're just going to try it out. We know and, it's a half-broken idea, but it's we're going we're gonna to do it. And I like you put a tip in there t- for game designers. You said game designers... Don't discuss this endlessly. Just go ahead and play it. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. game designers can have a tendency 
to get lost in the in the the procedural details. We right? all do because we you know when you're doing something creative, often there's this search for like oh let's just keep thinking about the perfect idea. Right. But I I think that that the the perfect idea comes again through iteration through making successive iterations and it's hard to do because you're putting something that you know is broken in front of people that you know probably aren't going to have a good time right. but that's the, that that's sort of how you learn I, I want to get to this game where we're going to involve the uh, the listeners. Let's do but, it. But, but I, I just want to, on the idea of iterating and getting feedback, hmm. there was one phrase that um, I just loved. You, you said, it's important to be able to take criticism. You said, uh, taking criticism is like eating spicy food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but basically you said, at first, it's really painful but then you you get over it, and then you start to crave it. Right. That right. was that was a nice that was a nice uh, connection. That's it. That's the the section on um, developing a culture of critique. And yeah. again, that's true whether you're in a classroom or whether you're at a company working together on projects. I think it's so important to emphasize a community that says we are here to give and receive supportive, thoughtful, but honest and hard-hitting feedback with each other. Um, And I think at the beginning of the essay, I kind of contrast this with sort of debates on social media. Like, you know, if you're putting on a post or getting in a flame war with someone, um, there's often the tendency, oh, this person's opinion is ridiculous. I'm just going to trounce them and embarrass them and dismiss them. Or in art school, you can have a workshop, an idea, and sometimes it turns into this game to see who can right. destroy but the other person's idea. Exactly. But for me, a design critique, it's not about being right. It's yeah. about being helpful. Yes. So here's something that somebody is trying to do. Here's what they actually did. And how can I help them connect those two points to each other? So... Yeah, so to me that, but that, so that criticism, that idea of like, and there's tips in there about, you know, m- not being too aggressive, but also not being right. too supportive and, 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 and how you kind of establish this culture of critique in an organization or in a classroom or, or in a project group, uh, in a creative collaboration. Um, that is part of this process. It is part of the design process or the creative process. It is a piece of the iterative loop because you're going to make something, then you're going to play test it, and then you're going to ask for feedback. And you, and again, you, like you said with the spicy food, you want to crave that feedback. You yes. have to realize, okay, I don't want you to compliment my project and, and pad my ego and tell me how great it is. I actually want you to tell me what's wrong with it that's right. because that's how it gets better. So that that's the kind of thing that that I'm that I'm talking about. Okay, we got we got a little over ten minutes left, Eric. Let, let, so this, this, let's do another exercise. This goes to the lightning round. I wish I had some theme music for you. Dun dun dun! Okay. Lightning round. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host for the remaining fifteen minutes of the show before Dave Mandel, the great Dave Mandel, comes in with "It's Complicated," his prog rock show, and I am very happy to have Eric Zimmerman live in studio this evening talking about his new book, The Rules We Break, Lessons in Play, Thinking, and Design. And now Eric is going to invite the listeners to participate in a live exercise. If you go to the live listener chat board, wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, you can participate. I'm going to be watching your responses and reading them off. Eric, go. Yeah, so what we were just talking about, the creative process, the design process, that's what this exercise is about as well. It, it comes from uh, the design section of the book, and it's about, it's called a good collaborator. So this is an exercise you do when you're starting a project, people are just coming together. I've used this in, in I use this in just about every class I teach. I use this in commercial collaborations. And this exercise, it's super simple. It just begins with one question. I'm going to say the question, and I want you to answer it. You're going to type it in. I can't see. Mark is going to read read this stuff out loud. I'm going to be taking notes. And the, so as Eric says, I want you to do it. He's not talking to me. He's talking to you, the yes, listeners. Yes. So this, this is listening. your opportunity to, to participate in the show. The question is, what makes a good collaborator? What Think about the people that you've worked with that are so awesome, you wish you could just keep working with them forever. What is 
a quality of a good collaborator and more than just a word I'm trying to elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that but what anything popping up not yet they're they're thinking the listeners okay. are thinking they're so 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 for example give give us an example mark what to you is a good collaborator someone who listens well okay so listens well can you and what do you mean by that exactly uh when uh when someone is trying to communicate something to them it, it could be it could be critical feedback but it also could be i want to state my opinion about something or i'm giving a signal that maybe we should change the topic or i want to go deep on it. it could be anything that the person is actively listening to what what the other person is saying and will will take that to heart mm. i mean that's so, that's so, a that, that that's that's a baseline right. of good collaboration. That's great. So you're saying that they're they're not only open to critical feedback, but they're actively listening and and when they do receive feedback, it's they're going to change their behavior. They're going to or not, they'll consider it at least. Right. They don't have to act on it right. necessarily. Um, but yes, and and I we now have some some listener Let's hear, contributions. Yeah. Okay, listener S. Ra says humor. Ah, uh, love that. Um, that girl from that place, that's the username, says someone who listens to your ideas and mm -hmm. shares theirs in ways to support and scaffold towards the end goal of the project. That's nicely written. Mm. Mike Sin, uh, WFMU's own Mike Sin, someone who listens and asks a lot of questions. Mm. A lot of listening here. Uh, user Rolando, <coughs> excuse me, listener Rolando, honesty. Mixed with sincerity. Um, Shumyum, who uh, named their, their son Ludo from earlier. Oh. Shumyum writes, thinks differently than me. Mm. So there's, there's, a, there's, there's a sense of some uh, diversity right. here. Uh, listener Jackie, hygiene. <laughs> what, what kind of hygiene? Um, well, but, but yeah, I think that that also that points at someone who has a kind of social awareness to realize yes. that they are, you know, sensitive to the to the let's say the physical context of yes. of, of where they're meeting and how they're meeting and is and is sensitive point. to that. Uh, listener and friend Wendy Del Formaggio, dynamic listens and relates has good attunement skills. Mm. Listener Gina, I can serve them something and they serve something else back. That's that's a good definition right. of collaboration, right? They're both uh, both giving. Herb died in NYC. When things get dark or serious, person can toss in a joke. Right. That's the humor. We that's that's the humor. Two for humor, right? And, uh, uh, listener Fredericks, longtime listener, flexibility ah. provides feedback. Uh, listener across the kill Van Cole, team spirit, the upfront agreement that we are working on something mm. together. And they want to hear and share ideas. Uh, listener Sam, again, someone who thinks I'm really smart <laughs> and loves my ideas, but also knows more than me and gives occasional suggestions that are super helpful. And uh, Dan F.A., someone who will do all the work and let you take all the credit. <laughs> that's the dream, uh, nice. isn't it? Um, that, that, that's I'm, such, kidding, I'm kidding. That's such a good list. Um, I think what's interesting about when, so, okay, so what is the exercise? Th this is the exercise. You're with a group of people. You brainstorm a list of what it means to be a good collaborator. Now, I'm just going to read back some of the ones that, that Mark was selecting from the list. Things like listening well, humor came up a couple times, listening and sharing. Um, to, y you get served and you serve something back. Um, honesty and sincerity. Uh attunement skills, flexibility, uh, someone who's, a, who's, who's involved in, uh, understands team spirit. So there's so many, and some of them could be quite practical, like finishes work on time, does what they say they're gonna do, is punctual to meetings. What do you do with this list? You brainstorm and you turn this into a document. That, you edit, maybe you edit it a little bit, you combine some things. I have a couple examples in the book from my college classes uh, where groups have done this. That list becomes a kind of constitution for the project. So here's a list of characteristics that we've all agreed together. It's not a boss telling you, but we've all agreed together. This is what makes a good collaborator. What's interesting about the list is, first of all, it's aspirational. So many times when people say, what makes a good collaborator? The instinct is, oh, well, don't be a jerk. Well, that doesn't help me because no one thinks they're a jerk. 
let's define what a good collaborator actually is. And when there's problems in a group, you can point at the list and say, hey, look, I know that, you know, I know that, uh, uh, that I can talk to you about this because we emphasize so much that listening well was one of the one of the attributes of a good collaborator that that we wanted and I so so that's why so it becomes easier to tell somebody look you're talking over other people I'd love for you to think about how to listen more sometimes we do sometimes we do an exercise where people go around the circle and say hey which of these things are you which one is your weakness which one are you working on right, right? it becomes a way to talk about group dynamics and of course it can evolve and change over time now i know that this seems so simple that it's like yeah this is obviously this is you know this could work and yeah it is a simple idea some of the exercises in here are much like tricky little broken tabletop games that you right. try and fix but some of them are just dead simple like this what is a good collaborator? It's just a list you make that then becomes a tool that you can use throughout the life of a project or a collaboration. And I find it so useful to externalize that because it makes the process, which is normally invisible or unspoken, visible. So that's what I'm all about. Just like we were making the idea of what makes an interaction meaningful, these sort of restrictions that kind of got us to the point where everyone was leaning forward when they were listening to us bounce those words back and forth, speaking right. of speaking and listening. So that that made kind of interaction design and constraints visible. This makes the, the kind of invisible assumptions that we may have visible, and it anchors us in, like I said, a sort of like a group constitution so anyway, that's just another example. And and your listeners' suggestions were fantastic. Wouldn't we all want to collaborate with this person that that is honest and sincere, that is dynamic and flexible, that uses humor and listens well? Wouldn't we also want to be that person? Right? We we're all working on on stuff like that. So yeah. so it, again, this is just a a simple exercise that's about design or the creative process. And I appreciated as you wrote about this in the book that you revealed something of surprise to see you say this. You claim that you perceive that you're not good at listening. No, I'm not a I'm not a natural listener. I'm I am, su I'm surprised to hear you say that. I'm a I'm a loudmouth. I'm a I'm a you know I'm I'm someone who likes to be up. This I think this is why I became a an educator, like, you know, you so like your own little stage, you know, you, you get to kind of lead the show. Kind of like sitting in front of a mic and yelling into it yeah. one hour a week. You know, but, <laughs> but, but that doesn't, but I also understand that that doesn't make for great collaborations on the other side. Now, I, you know, I, it's not that I want to talk over people. It's that I get excited about something and I get rolling and I think by talking and then I'm talking more and then I'm kind of elaborating my ideas and I don't realize that I might be trampling over other people and, um, uh, you know, not, not giving them room to speak. So this kind of exercise is, it helps me train, helps me become a better designer and a better person. And you're you're modeling right here this this level of self-awareness and willingness to talk about your own journey of self-improvement that would also be good for a collaborator. Right, uh, maybe that should be on the list too. Yeah, yeah self-criticism. Self-criticism. <laughs> it's like spicy food. I can't get enough self-criticism. <laughs> right. I crave it. Right, I don't know if I'm there yet. I'm yeah. working on that no, one. Well, that's, it's, a, it's a tall order. Uh, this is great. We, we're, we're gonna have to wrap here in a couple minutes. Uh, Dave Mandel's going to be in with It's Complicated. If people uh, want to learn more about you, I want to say to the listeners, I have posted links on the playlist. And if you're listening in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. Find the December 5th, 2022 episode with Eric Zimmerman. And there's a playlist link that has links to the book and ericzimmerman.com and theruleswebreak.com. Um, if there's someone out there who says, I want to, I want to study under this guy, he's amazing. What should people do to, uh, get involved in NYU's game center? Well, the NYU game center is in Tisch School of the Arts. We have a BFA program, a bachelor's program, and we also have an MFA program, a master of fine arts program. We also have a lot of public, free public programs. So if you go to our website, um, uh, gamecenter.com. Uh, nyugamecenter.nyu.edu, I think, or gamecenter.nyu.edu. Use your favorite non-Google search engine to find Thank it. Thank you. Um, 
get on our mailing list and yeah, please come. It would it would be it would be great great to see you there. If you go and and uh, connect with Eric Zimmerman, tell him you uh, found out about him on Tectonic. He's an old friend and uh, was guest number five of Tectonic back in 2017. And it's been such a pleasure and privilege to have you back, sir. Thank you for rejoining. Mark, this has been so much fun. And I, 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 I feel like we've just skimmed the surface in terms of the ways in which all these ideas about design and play and games connect to the incredibly important stuff that you talk about every every day, every week on your show, um, relating to technology and culture and economics and uh, and and making this, you know, society a better place. Well, thanks. With your help, Eric, uh, we're going to collaborate and try that. And I hope you will be back so we can continue the conversation on the show. Thanks, Mark. Eric Zimmerman. That was Eric Zimmerman. I turned off the wrong mic there for a second. Eric Zimmerman, author of the new book, The Rules We Break, here on Tectonic. Thanks again to Eric for being uh, a part of the show. And that's the time we have, friends. You have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, you know what your homework is from the professor. I want you to, and I'm saying the professor right over there. I'm not a professor. It's, it's Eric. Uh, the homework is avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Stay tuned for Dave Mandel. Have a great week, everybody. And here we are. Good evening, folks. I am um, I'm back after a week off. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Before I forget, right off the bat, I want to thank Tom Desch for filling in, doing an amazing show for me last year. 
last week. <laughs> Not last year yet. It will be soon. And uh, I'm going to dive right into this week's program. I'm going to start with a piece of Japanese prog. And this is something off a compilation called Prog Tokyo, released just a, like a year or two ago, and contains, as you might guess, a bunch of Tokyo-based, or J Japan-based anyway, prog groups. And we're going to hear something from the group Akiko's Cosmo Space, and we'll jump right into that and be back right after this.
Okay, so I'm going to pause here, take a breath. I dove into <laughs> dove into the show kind of abruptly this week because we had a, sh- a quick handoff between uh, between Mr. Mark Hurst and me. But I'm going to pause here.